Mark McGowan is a specialist in the religious, social and communications history of Canada and Ireland and he is author of the award-winning books Catholics at the Gathering Place, Historical Essays on the Archdiocese of Toronto and The Waning of the Green, Catholics, the Irish and Identity in Toronto and Michael Power, The Struggle to Build the Catholic Church on the Canadian Frontier. He has recently completed a revisionist work on the Irish famine migration to Canada and a short award-winning book for the Ireland Park Foundation, Death or Canada, the Irish Famine, the Migration to Toronto, 1847 and Toronto. He is currently researching the evolution of religious broadcasting in Canada and writing a book on Canada's Irish Catholics during the Great War. A recipient of four university teaching awards, he has served as principal of St. Michael's College from 2002 to 2011 and as acting vice provost students for the University of Toronto for part of 2013. Mark has returned from recently being in Ireland where he participated in the Great Famine Walk, which was a walk from Strokestown to Dublin, uh, which was a path that so many from that area, from Strokestown, took in order to migrate to Canada. And we heard from Carolyn Callery earlier on talking about this. Uh, first of all, Mark, good morning and thanks a million for taking the time and coming and having a chat with us. Oh, my pleasure, Austin. Always, always good to, to have a chat about these um, important historical matters. And as I mentioned in the in intro, much of your work, if a lot of your work, focuses on the Irish migration to Canada and your previous publications. And in this phase, uh, the Roscommon phase, the Strokestown phase, uh, Carolyn mentioned that there are 1,490 uh, people that were part of that, that ultimately you're hoping you can build a history around? Yeah, I mean, Carolyn and I met for the first time in 2013 in Nijmegen at a famine conference, and to be quite honest, Austin, I was going to leave this area of study and move on to something else, and she convinced me that, the, uh, uh, that this was a, a worthwhile project, so I started laying the groundwork for it in 2014. So uh, for the past five years, I've used teams of senior undergraduate students and uh, uh, myself and anyone who wanted to, to participate at the university in trying to track down what amounted to, uh, at this point, about 274 families. Uh, they were much easier to track because 1,490 migrants uh, were only listed uh, by the surname and given name of the, the male head of the household in most cases, some female heads, but so it made it very difficult to, to sort of try to hunt and peck for 1,490, but much easier to hunt for 274 families that came from 32 townlands uh, in Strokestown um, and had been assisted off the estate uh, by Major Dennis Mann, who had uh, just assumed full title of the estate uh, not long before the famine struck. So, I mean, this has been part and parcel of, of my work uh, for the last uh, four or five years. And then to sort of walk in the footsteps uh, of these migrants was really quite, uh, at, at sometimes quite moving, um, given the fact that, uh, you know, you see names on paper. Um, my research teams have tracked uh, many of them, most uh, so far, to their deaths, either at Grosil or Quebec, 
uh, but uh, also uh, tracking the ones who lived uh, into uh, uh, their pathway into the interior uh, and then discovering that uh, one of the things that they hadn't known five years ago was that uh, there was actually some degree of of expectation of this group coming to Upper Canada. In fact, I found just a few months ago uh, a, a newspaper article reprinted in Quebec um, in which one of these migrants was interviewed and said that, oh no, we were going to Upper Canada. So we actually knew that they had a destination in mind, which isn't surprising then when we find so many sort of clustered eventually in the Niagara Peninsula uh, and in the western part of uh, what we now call southwestern Ontario in what is the, uh, the Huron tract lands that were being opened up by the Canada Company. But, you know, their, their journey really began at the estate and that uh, close to 165-kilometer um, walk from Strokestown to the Shannon, then along the Royal Canal to Dublin, then being ferried uh, to Liverpool, and then boarding four ships of questionable quality uh, uh, headed for Quebec. But uh, the journey itself, I mean, when you do it on foot and you, and you actually walk the canal, you realize um, this was not uh, an easy journey for people, first of all, who had rarely been off their own townlands in Strokestown, were crowded along very narrow banks of this canal, um, which are, in some cases are fairly steep, you know, with bog on one side, bog on the other, canal in the middle. And then you realize that at the time they were traveling, Austin, that they had uh, they would be competing for space along along the sides of the canal with uh, with barge uh, horses that uh, had been drawing the uh, uh, the barges along the canal. And so, I mean, if you can imagine the walk itself, I mean, with perhaps 900 children in this group as well, trying to manage, I mean, trying to manage five children as, as I did, you know, with my own family is difficult enough on a hike. But imagining, you know, dozens and dozens of children, you know, keeping them out of the canal, keeping them out of the bog, keeping them from rolling down the side. Um, you know, listening to their complaints about the tightness of their shoes, which, you know, had been given them before they uh, they left and they had never worn shoes before. I'm thinking of all of the horse excrement that they would have to trod through on, on those paths. It was, I stood there one morning uh, somewhere between uh, Abbey Shrewl and, and Mullingar uh, just thinking, my God, this was uh, a horrendous way uh, to start a journey that was not going to get better for them, but was actually going to get worse. And Mark, you, you point out, as you say, if you go out on a hike with your kids, uh, first of all, the thing you're going to do is you're going to wear the appropriate clothing and you're going to put on the appropriate footwear and you're going to bring light uh, backpack with just water in it, etc. Because you know you're going to be coming back for your meal at the end of the day. But you want, went on this hike in uh, costume, first of all, and uh, the clothing and everything else about the journey for the uh, pilgrims, because again, it is it was a pilgrimage, is brought very much to life in the way that you handle this. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I mean the the most moving times uh, for those of us who are in the core group and we're in costume in the towns that we entered were meeting the school children and uh, Carolyn sort of taking the lead on, on explaining, you know, that she was in character, why they were on the canal, where they hoped to be going, and then you're realizing that this was making history uh, come alive uh, to the children, and the children walked with us. 
But, you know, in the long stretches, and I'll be quite frank, I mean, the long stretches, we weren't in costume. And, uh, I mean, I'm an old Boy Scout. I had proper hiking gear with me and, uh, you know, the kind of uh, water-resilient uh, hiking clothing that uh, we got drenched several times between Abishrul and Mullingar. That was a, a miserable day, a 30-kilometer walk, and we got rained on about three times. Uh, but realizing that when the sun came out later, my, my clothing was, was, uh, was practically dry. Um, my feet were fine uh, because I had good boots. And then you think back 170 years and you think, my God, um, with uh, with driving rains, with with terrible clothing, with shoes that oftentimes didn't fit um, and that you weren't used to, and trudging, you know, in the context that I explained just a few minutes ago, it it was just uh, it, it must have been horrendous for them and uh, uh, and a great worry to parents and uh, uh, and it. That you you can't help but be moved, Austin. You know, as you sort of walk in those footsteps, thinking, you know, here by the grace of God go I. And uh, 170 years later, in in relative uh, comfort, doing the walk compared to those who did it originally. And when you say a relative comfort, again, you had a bed at the end of each evening, and you had a proper meal, which these pilgrims wouldn't have had. Absolutely. I mean, they would have been hurried along by the uh, the team of bailiffs that uh, John Rossman, uh, Dennis Mann's second cousin, uh, who was his land agent, had sort of arranged uh, to take them uh, to Dublin and then to Liverpool to make sure they all got there and didn't come back. I mean, I mean, you, you realize, too, the geography of, of, of the canal uh, itself uh, made for very few places where a large number of people could camp at night. And then when you did camp at night, you were sleeping on the ground with whatever you had and then protecting whatever you had from the thieves and ne'er-do-wells who sort of trolled the canal, you know, looking for any precious bits that they could take or any food that they could take, because remember, we're in the, the midst of, of famine. By the time they got to Mullingar, they were competing for space with railway workers that had been brought in because they were building that uh, Trans-Ireland line at the time, and as our people were moving through, uh, in the spring of 1847, um, they would have been building um, uh, the, the section of rail line uh, at Mullingar. You know, and then you think, you know, yeah, we actually had uh, fairly decent accommodation and sometimes uh, what I would consider opulent accommodation um, in the evening uh, and uh, uh, a good meal and, of course, a pint. Walking along a canal as distinct from walking along a river would mean that the quality of the water was also very different and it must have been difficult because it possibly, given as you said there were horses along the banks etc, it was more than likely contaminated. So for parents to try to protect their children from what would have been a, uh, had they been beside a river with fresh running water, also a major challenge. Yes, I, I would think so. I mean, even as we were walking, I mean, you could tell that uh, there were sections of the canal that were very stagnant. Um, the only time that you actually had, you know, any visible movement in the canal was when the wind blew across the top or, or when locks were being opened. And, and I had the... Um, yeah, I had the pleasure of actually watching someone, you know, uh, work the locks from the Irish waterways, and uh, and there you can see that's when the water begins to to flow in some ways. But but normally it's stagnant, it's murky. Um, it it would be, you know, not just horse excrement, but I mean the the ducks and swans, and they would also leave their deposits in there as well. Um, and it wouldn't be the type of place that. Uh, 
um, one would want to sort of how sh how should we say take a quick dip in because mm -hmm. uh, uh, I suspect that uh, as the summer moved on uh, in Ireland uh, the waters would be uh, perhaps uh, more odorous than <laughs> than uh, than let's say a free flowing river mm -hmm. uh, uh, that they may have been used to because they they live so close to the Shannon. Now you mentioned earlier on that you know the impact that this had on you uh, as a, an academic uh, was very different than where you would normally go to research a topic or a, a period of time academically to actually put the boots on and to research it in that format had a major impact on you? Yeah, I, I would say that, I mean, you have to understand that, that many academic historians, professional historians, um, eschew or poo-poo or try to step away from commemoration um, as be being kind of a, a lesser species of uh, of the historical art. And um, I've always believed, actually, that uh, I, I like to visit the places that I write about. I, I like to visualize um, uh, what I'm what I'm uh, trying to establish, you know, historically. So for me, doing the the walk first of all as a proposition was 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 not a problem for some of my colleagues it might, it might have been um, but I've been involved in commemoration before and I figured if the historian isn't part of the process uh, getting it right uh, then we're part of the problem in allowing for you know whatever uh, mythology to sort of uh, uh, take hold of an event or a monument or a commemoration so in this particular case given the fact that there was there was a, a hefty walk involved um, over some terrain that I had never seen before. And I've traveled Ireland fairly extensively, but uh, never in this way. And then, in a sense, knowing that 170 years before, the people that I've been studying and, and trying to bring to the light of, of day again from, from kind of the midst of history, um, uh, that was particularly uh, powerful. But I think the most powerful moments as a historian, we're using that as an opportunity to interpret the famine and that really important moment in Irish history to Irish school children. And, uh, and they came out in droves, and they walked with us, and they talked with us, and asked really good questions. And uh, I thought to myself at the end of one of the days, this is some of the most meaningful work I've ever done as a professional historian, um, not talking to colleagues, but talking to a much broader audience and, and using different tools, not just the academic tools that you know I've honed over the years, but also dramatic tools that makes that make history come alive to um, uh, an audience that that might not necessarily be interested in reading about it, but certainly more interested in visualizing it. So um, that I, I would say uh, that was quite a an epiphany in some ways about uh, the historian's work and how it can be, um, how should we say, transmitted more effectively to a much broader audience. Uh, and still what I would think is, is getting the story right. Um, and I think, Mark, this is where I would have to admit that as a student, I found history of little to no interest for the very reasons you just outlined, whereas uh, as I have got older and I have been able to engage with the historical story as represented in uh, different media, uh, be it film, be it uh, all other aspects of uh, commemoration, 
it has come alive and as you say if, if it remains purely an academic exercise it's not reaching those that are coming up that need to be able to learn from it mm-hmm. so yeah, absolutely and I think I learned this lesson quite well in 2009 when uh, I had completed Death or Canada the book which had originally been written as a was supposed to be a pamphlet for the Ireland Park Memorial in Toronto uh, at the request of Robert Kearns, and then it became, you know, part of an archaeological dig at where the Toronto International Film Festival building is today, uh, of the old Fever uh, Hospital and and uh, and sheds. And I remember Ron Williamson and the archivist, uh, or he was the archaeologist rather, and he and I were talking after the whole thing was over, and this film was made based on the story itself. And I said, Ron, have we have we cheapened ourselves as academics? And he said, No, Mark. He said. You write an article about this, and maybe 50 people will read it within the academy. You write a book about this, maybe 500 people. Well, we've just made a movie about this, and he said thousands of people will get the story. And I think that was a really important moment for me about a decade ago, realizing that um, doing public history like this is is extraordinarily important, and uh, and it's where sort of the the gown meets the town, where the ivory tower is sort of uh, breached, and uh, and the stories are told much more broadly than to uh, uh, the select few. And I think this is an important time when you do mention that 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 uh, film, Death or Canada, and I remember when it opened here in Ottawa, uh, that was a powerful movie, and it certainly encapsulated that period in history and that story in a way that I don't think I would have read had it been either even in a pamphlet or a book. Uh, so, yeah, the representation of what is painful history in different media, I think, has a, a very important role in uh, educating all of us. So, on that note, I understand that during the famine walk from Strokestown to Dublin, you were accompanied by cameras, and uh, you, that's, a lot of that journey was recorded and potentially will end up in some form of documentary. Yeah, I think um, the uh, Irish Her- Heritage Trust um, uh, kept, uh, Jason King kept taking uh, vignettes uh, throughout the walk of, of several of the, of the core group. And so we would offer a three to four minute capsule uh, of some of the features along the canal, some of the places that we were passing through, uh, also uh, uh, some of the personalities who would have been a part of, of the process. So um, a number of us were engaged uh, along the walk uh, doing these clips, and these clips are available on the uh, uh, Strokestown Park Facebook page. Um, they're they're available on the National Famine Way uh, webpage. And there's some also uh, some good commentary, I think, uh, the family stories that are now being told uh, about the famine by subsequent generations on the Great Famine Voices uh, uh, website as well. And uh, these are North American stories, but uh, nonetheless, they, they link quite nicely to uh, some of the things that we talked about along the uh, the canal during the uh, National Famine Way. And to bring it over to this side of the Atlantic, I know also Jason uh, recorded you giving a brief history 
uh, of the Irish in Ottawa and the Canal that is available on YouTube. Yes, I mean, um, we were here about two weeks before the walk. I mean, and uh, I, I took the Irish Heritage Trust uh, folks uh, up the Ottawa Valley. Uh, I mean, I'm originally from uh, Ottawa, so that uh, this was a kind of a personal story as well. So uh, we did clips along the Rideau Canal. I took them across the flooded Ottawa River at that time to Quion. We went up to Sand Bay to look to where the Irish raftsmen had brought in uh, the timber. We went over to Mount St. Patrick, uh, one of the uh, what some people call one of the Irish holy lands in Renfrew County, where there actually was a holy well, but it was quite flooded because of the uh, the spring flooding in the valley. We went up to Eganville and saw the Bonashir in a in a in a state that I've never seen it in as it tore through uh, uh, the village and. Uh, all along the way, uh, there were clips taken talking about the story of Irish migration and settlement. Um, one of the more interesting one stories that I think that I uh, was able to tell was uh, at Douglas um, uh, in uh, St. Michael's uh, churchyard there. Uh, that was the story of the Whelan family, Stephen Whelan, a famine boy, uh, not an orphan. His family migrated through to uh, Admaston Township, uh, uh, and uh, from there, he had many adventures, came back and became reeve of the township for a tremendous amount of time, was involved in railways and farming, and just a kind of an interesting story of a famine lad from Carlo who uh, who becomes one of the most prominent uh, individuals uh, in that part of Renfrew County. So it was um, quite an adventure that day as we drove uh, on both sides of the Ottawa River and then back down to do some uh, filming uh, in Ottawa itself. And, uh, and then we were on to Grosil, uh and, uh, and to Kingston, uh, where we did uh, uh, some additional filming talking about the Irish experiences at Kingston and certainly um, the horrendous experience of, of the Irish landing at the quarantine station at Grosil. And there, Parks Canada was our partner, and uh, we had almost exclusive run of the island for the better part of a morning. Uh, because it was a, a day when uh, the tourists were uh, were not there, and uh, they were just doing uh, what we say uh, re refueling and uh, and refurbishing supplies on the island. So uh, we had uh, free reign to do some more clips there, and those are also on the Great Famine Voices uh, website as well. So, Mark, uh, before we wrap up, to go back to the ongoing research on the 1490, if anybody, what message do you want to put out there and what are the coordinates if uh, we're reaching out to people? Well, we're, I think I'm at a stage in the research now where I've identified the whereabouts of about 154 of the families, either through death uh, or through settlement, either in Canada or the United States. And, and I guess I'm at a stage now where I'm sort of reaching out to uh, genealogical societies, uh, particularly in Canada and also in the U.S., um, to individuals who may have uh, some link, first of all, to Roscommon and perhaps to Strokestown. And uh, collectively, we can, we can uh, develop their own family story. And then I can add, you know, more, how shall we say, finds to this uh, list of uh, 274 families that I have. I mean, it, uh, um, so I would say that uh, if there are any listeners, Austin, that uh, uh, can be of assistance, um, my coordinates are, are easily found uh, through the History Department at the University of Toronto, and they only need email me and, uh, 
and know too that uh, um, all discretion uh, will be will be uh, undertaken. You know, as we sort of discuss the possibility of, of family links to um, the old 1490, or as I call them, the 274. Um, and uh, and so that's where the research lies now. Actually, this summer I'm uh, it, it's forming a chapter in a book that I'm writing on Irish famine orphans. Uh, uh, who came to Canada in 1846, 47, and 48, and I have a data set of over over 1,600 children who were who were orphaned, and that spans from New Brunswick right through to Western Ontario. So, this is forming part of a much bigger study. But um, I'm now at a stage where um, I'm looking for. Um, some contribution from the public that uh, will help me along. And is there a list anywhere with the family names that you are particularly interested in? Yeah, I think what uh, the uh, Strokestown Park um, uh, Facebook page um, has some uh, documents attached and uh, um, and people could consult there as well. There's also some documentation on the National Famine Way uh, website. Jason has been uh, and the Irish Heritage Trust have been really good at sort of posting things uh, on there. So um, if they're looking for hard data, just an inquiry to me with a, with a family name, I'll be able to tell them within a few minutes whether or not they're on the list or not. Okay. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure having a chat. It's been educational in every respect, and uh, I do really appreciate your time, and thank you very much. And I, I hope uh, that maybe as a result of this, we can help connect one or two more. Yeah, that's great, and thanks so very much for uh, inviting me on your program, Austin. Thank you, Mark.